Hello, and welcome to the History of Internal Communication podcast. My name is Joe Chip, and I'm a research fellow at the Brunel Business School. In this podcast series, I will be exploring the history of a profession that's often assumed to be a recent innovation, but which actually has its roots in the late 19th century. My work is part of a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council called An Institutional History of Internal Communication in the United Kingdom. This month, I'm thrilled to be joined by Sam Blazard, the employer brand content producer for Fortnum & Mason. Sam brings a wealth of experience to our research, having worked for three of our project's case studies, Royal Mail, Unilever and John Lewis. He is also the host of his own popular podcast series, Comms from the Shed, where he discusses all things internal communication. During our conversation, we cover a wide range of topics, from the future of the company magazine to channels of misinformation. Enjoy our journey through the fascinating history of internal communication. One thing that we've found talking to various people in internal comms is that uh, it's quite a common theme that people have actually come into it from a different profession. And obviously, that's the case with you as well, coming into it from journalism. So I guess one thing it might be interesting for listeners to hear is how you made that transition from journalism to internal comms. Well, firstly, just to say thank you for uh, inviting me to take part, Joe. It's very, very kind of you. Uh, and it's it's quite strange to be reflecting back on you know, over 20 years, probably 25 years of uh, working in internal comms on and off. In terms of my background, um, I trained as a journalist. I mean, in the spirit of full transparency, I didn't work as a a journalist full time for any great period, but that is my discipline because I've always been a writer. I had a degree in English at uh, Brunel, actually, funnily enough, Brunel University. And um, so we're fellow alumni, mm. but I had a, I, following my degree, I trained, you know, I took the NCTG, NCTJ training at um, Napier University in Edinburgh, and I got placements on uh, local newspapers, the Edinburgh Evening News was one, um, and so, um, it, to, to be honest with you, it, it was kind of accidental in terms of how I got into it um I kind of um I I was working really um as as a a kind of temp in a summer job and I was doing I was actually doing it data entry I was inputting financial checks and payments um I just went to work for Royal Mail for two weeks in reality but someone who worked there had heard that I you know I was trained as a journalist and um, communications and especially internal communications, employee communications was a, was a very new thing at the time. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of fell into it, but I was I was allowed. Um, I, I guess I was kind of allowed a certain amount of freedom within that, um, which was which was great. Um, I think as well, just just uh, there's a broader point probably to be made here. I think. In terms of the, you know, you talk about internal comms and journalism, um, there is, and and transition, you know, there's a discipline to internal comms um, that to me is rooted in writing and storytelling. You know, at least it should be. Mm. Um, You're also, I think as well, you're also reporting on the company that you work for and its affairs. 
And so people who work in internal comms have often been referred to or referred to themselves, actually, as the conscience of the organization. And I think the best comms people probably have been that. Um, and, and to be honest, you know, between you and I, isn't that what uh, the great investigative journalism or journalists have done? You know, they scrutinize facts, reports, they, they report these things to a wider audience and talk about the, the things that, that people need to know. And I think, so I, I suppose the, the, um, there have always been principles in my own sort of style of working in journalism, but I think it's just taken me a few years to figure, figure that out, that I've always had those principles kind of rooted at the core of my being. Um, but I would also say that my own personal belief is in a kind of caring and compassionate style of journalism, you know, not the tabloid end. And that's that's partly why I didn't pursue journalism as a career, because I didn't really like what I saw on those placements. Because um, I think, I also think now, if you bring the story up to, you know, 2023, I think the last thing we need in this day and age is more reactionary content bouncing around in a kind of endless online echo chamber yeah. you know i've no i've no desire to add to that um so yeah it it wasn't really um it was a kind of it was a kind of thing that happened almost instantaneously with me actually because like i said i was on a summer job and you know a chap called uh, bill forrest who worked at royal mail at the time had this exotic job title called communications manager um which I thought was interesting. Nobody really understood it at the time. It was a very new profession. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, so interesting. And uh, from talking to the Institute of Internal Communication, where they've got a campaign at the moment called I Chose I See, that's the idea there is to try and make it more of a profession that people actively choose to go into, where, where like you say, uh, often the experience is more one some kind of wasn't that aware of before and came into. It's also interesting you talk about it as a new profession because I suppose that's one of the things, one of the reasons we're studying this is that actually it does have roots going back quite a long way, but there's no kind of real clear starting point to internal comms. So actually in the early 20th century, you got welfare work where actually communicating well with employees is one of the things that was kind of debated there. And then it's around about the 60s and 70s you start actually getting the kind of terminology internal communication, but it is something where it's it's not had a clear kind of beginning, but it's sort of gradually evolved out of other types of work and become more and more prominent. And, yeah, and I think, yeah. just, to, just to add to what you're saying there, I think now, though, if I was joining the job market now in 2023, I'd actually say it is, it is a more attractive pr profession to go into because I think it's had that solid 20 or 30 years as a recognised discipline. Mm. And I think there have been very seminal moments I think the COVID-19 pandemic being one, which we could maybe talk about later, but there's certain things that have solidified it, I think, as part of the more broad corporate kind of infrastructure. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And uh, during that time, of course, there's more kind of qualifications that you can do as well that give it kind of some more formal recognition as a profession. And uh, so obviously you say actually that you felt there were quite a lot of similarities then between the style of journalism that you were interested in, at least in internal comms. Do you feel there were are any kind of key differences between those two lines of work or if they're being done right, do you think actually they are quite similar really? Um, are they similar? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess... I guess from my own personal point of view, I, I've always been looking to 
when I've been in corporate environments to think about any opportunity where I can be creative, you know, because I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to do this as a, a profession, there have to be moments in it that, that I enjoy because there's a certain, dis I think there's a certain discipline to internal communications to give you a direct answer to your question. Um, but there is, there is in journalism too, because there are, there are rules, you know, around copy and structure, uh, you know, and the way it works. I mean, <clears throat> I've kind of, in my own sort of life and career, I've kind of created my own opportunities with journalism. Although I said I hadn't worked full time as a journalism, um, I freelanced as a, a music journalist for over 15 years, okay. kind of as a, as a side hustle. And I had a whale of a time doing that. I, I don't mind telling you, you know, it, it led to all kinds of wonderful experiences. Um, and to the extent where I wish I'd actually believed in myself a bit more when I was younger in that regard, because it, it also, it's also had lots of positive offshoots. Like it's led to me having this kind of sideline sort of podcasting type of career as well, which is, which is great. But that, that's also about a journalistic discipline. I think if you do it well, but in terms of in terms of differences, though, specifically, I think pre-social media, the truest form of journalism was actually about great editing. I think that's the fundamental point, you know, because I, I kind of see myself as a writer. But it's important to understand that editing is as important, arguably more important than writing is, especially from an effective communications point of view, which is what internal comms is all about. And I think having a razor sharp focus on headlines and the real kernel of a story mm. is kind of what journalism's about but i think you can apply that and i think people have as as the years have gone by applied that more and more to employee communications which actually if we're really honest about it when you talk about i mean i came in yeah probably sort of early 90s but people were still they're still very long-winded in terms of a, a sort of a discipline but as social media forms have become much more part of the internal comms channels mix in recent years that gap's really closed um, and you also have this kind of blurring between internal communication and external communication which has been accelerated by technology so like you know what's the difference between my personal phone and my work phone it is it's very very blurred it's like the stuff i see here is looks very similar to what I see there, you know, it's that that's all that's all contributed to the the closing of the gap. Um, the other thing I think probably to say here is that everyone is a journalist or a writer now or a content creator, you know. Um, but you know, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, internal communications people have a very different set of considerations to grapple with because they have to think about what leaders want, they have to think about what the company line or the priorities are. And as I mentioned, they have to sort through facts, background information, but also they're trying to create content for an increasingly distracted population, you know, and that they want to create something that they think their employees might read, you know, mm. which is which can often be a bit of a hit and miss affair, you know. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, there's the kind of yes, yeah, split, I guess, responsibility partly to the readers, but also to uh, the management as well. And it's, I guess there's a, a line to be, yeah, kind of, yeah, have to balance on between those, isn't there? Yeah, that's part of the, that's one of the most challenging kind of aspects, I think, of the discipline. But it's probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of the discipline as well. Yeah, but it's also one that we found looking back is certainly from the early days of uh, internal comms, even before it's called that. So that's certainly a, 
uh, something that the welfare workers in the early 20th century were struggling with, where they were, felt they were representing the workers, but the workers felt that they were representing the managers. So they, they're quite often unpopular with yeah, both sides, really. Yeah, interesting. Very yeah. interesting. <laughs> Not saying that internal comms people are unpopular with both sides now. I'm talking no, no, but, <laughs> but but you know, but the, the struggle is real and the struggle goes on. You know that will always be a that will always be a thing. I mean, I, I spend a, an awful lot of time, um, unashamedly, so I, I make no kind of um, apologies for it. But I spend a lot of time kind of out in the field, you know, increasingly, because ironically, you know, as technologies increased, we. we we seem to sort of become slightly more detached all the time or disconnected from our employees. So curiously, I think you actually have to spend more time connecting with them than ever before. Um, because otherwise there's too much of a reliance on technology or an assumption that a, a message or messages are getting through. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So on this project, we've got 20 case studies that we're looking at. And uh, one reason we're particularly we're keen to speak to you is because, of course, you've actually worked with uh, three of the organisations we're looking at. So that's Royal Mail, Unilever and John Lewis. So I guess that maybe means you've got you're in a position to give, a, I guess, a bit of insight into whether there are actually differences in the way that these different organisations communicate uh, with their employees. So did you feel that there were differences you found? Yeah, you know, if I if I reflect on that point, um, th there really were differences. You know, I mean, you, you might find, um, I mean, communications, internal communications, employee communications. It 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 is true to say it's a very transferable skill. You know, I've, and I've been very lucky to work for lots of great organisations, three of which you've mentioned. But the the examples you share there, um, I found they were very different. I mean, ironically. Unilever and Royal Mail used to cohabit and share a building in uh, Blackfriars at one time. Uh, okay. But that's that's maybe another story. But the very different organisations. I mean, I, I sort of hinted at it there, but I had a very free remit when I was first at Royal Mail, um, partly because I was young and I was kind of learning all the time, but also because I was given kind of a lot of licence by the communications manager, um, Bill Forrest and others um, to express myself to some degree. Mm. Um, and, you know, I got to write for, you know, I, I, I got to kind of sort of free write sort of articles on occasion during that period. Um, I, w I went on to work for communication services, which was a part of Royal Mail at Old Street, which was attempting to set itself up as an internal agency, which ran creative projects and campaigns for different parts of the Royal Mail group. So, you know, for example, you know, you do a poster campaign for post office counters or you do um, a safety campaign for postmen and women, or you might do, there was a small business awards I worked on for Parcel Force Worldwide, for example, and you sort of charge them as an internal client. So that was one thing they were doing. I mean, Unilever was very fascinating to me and it still is because it's such an enormous global entity with a foothold in so many countries and continents across the world. I mean, I was always aware of the tension and the dynamic between almost like the mothership, which was Blackfriars at the time, mm -hmm. and all of the satellite, you know, countries and offices. Um, and, you know, there were also significant cultural differences um, in terms of the, the people that I worked with. And it could be quite challenging as well, because I remember Unilever sold off um, 
uh, part of its holdings at the time, uh, a, a company, uh, I think they were a kind of a beauty products brand called Alberto Culva. And that really affected uh, colleagues in the US and other parts of the world. And that was a very, very delicate and politically sensitive piece of global communication, which meant briefing, you know, multiple teams all around the world and announcements that had to be very tightly coordinated across time zones. Um, so, you know, that that's quite that was quite unique. And at Unilever, I, I had a, quite a young sort of team working for me. So I had a I had a, um, a direct report in the US, one in Amsterdam and Europe, one in Singapore and Asia. And I mean, <clears throat> John Lewis, I talk about them briefly. That, that was an interesting one as well, because when I joined internal comms there, my observation was that it, from a communications point of view, it was very much playing second fiddle to PR and marketing. Okay. And you would find that partners, as employees are called there, they're still called that, um, they would hear a lot of, they would hear a lot about exciting product launches secondhand, you know, and I found that very frustrating. Um, and the, the, you know, when I joined the company, they were also seeing the Christmas ad um, on television, like everyone else, in the Pop Idol or X Factor ad break. So that the, you know, there were certain things that I was keen to change because I wanted them to get a preview of products. I wanted them to see the Christmas ad, even if it was just hours before it broke on. TV or now on social media, you know, and I think that was that was that was one thing I I kind of quite enjoyed having a, a an, an influence on, um, and I think in in my sp second spell at Royal Mail, I mean, my first spell I worked for the British Philatelic Bureau, and I was very much tasked between you know using very early iterations of channels like newsletters, events. There's a thing called Lotus Notes email once upon a time that I created an e-newsletter on with drop-down menus, which sounds so quaint and articulated and archaic now. But that that was that was quite innovative at the time. So it's funny to reflect on those channels. But when I went back to Royal Mail, um, it was all about I worked um, at Rathbone Place, and it was all about strike action, uh, writing late-night briefings. Um, creating kind of intranet sites that were about the strike, um, essential information, you know, cutting through propaganda. There were sort of mass redundancies. I think at one stage there was 10,000 people being made redundant a year. Um, but there were also other things like the, the communications campaigns about improving safety. But the, the dark clouds had kind of really gathered overhead you know, when I worked there in my second spell. And I, I wouldn't, you know, in reflection, I wouldn't say it was a great time, but I learned a, a lot about myself then. Because um, they say you don't learn anything about yourself in the good times, which is um, <laughs> absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, interesting as well, what you're saying about uh, John Lewis, how they weren't really uh, briefing the staff on the products, because one of the things we found from studying it, that one of the purposes it seems of internal comms seems to be to make the employees ambassadors for the firm but so that you know, communicating the information so they can and I, that yeah, is and I, important. absolutely and I will put a disclaimer on that because there were a lot of positive things uh, and actually you know John Lewis did communicate about everything and they had a very democratic structure where everyone was allowed to voice an opinion Everyone was allowed to share a view from every branch and every branch had its own um, newsletter 
there was a thing called the John Lewis Gazette, but there were also John Lewis Branch Chronicle magazines. So, th- so consider that every branch had a journalist. Hmm. You know, that was still in existence when I was there. So it wasn't for a want of communication, Joe. You know, there was tons of it and everyone hmm. had a voice. And But I think sometimes when you come into an organization with fresh eyes, you have to look at it and say, what's missing here? You know, what are, what are the communication gaps from my point of view and from my experience and while there was a lot of communication going on it's kind of you've got to sort of cut through that because John Lewis actually in some ways had the opposite problem from a lot of organizations so a lot of organizations don't talk enough Mm. I, I, I might sort of reflect that it maybe kind of talked too much you know it was kind of it was it was kind of suffocating itself from just everyone having a voice on everything. But I mean, the democratic structure of the business is a wonderful thing. It's just that from a communications point of view, it, it created a challenge where you had to really cut to the chase and be much more direct on some of the things that mattered. That's just my own personal take. Others yeah. will have theirs. Yeah, oh, that's interesting, yeah. And um, as it's also, earlier you were talking about social media, of course, and uh, how some of the changes that's brought. And of course, one of the things that gets talked about a lot in terms of that is the spread of misinformation. And what we've actually got coming up for our next Source of the Month blog post is on that theme, but looking further back to uh, the grapevine as just an informal channel of communication in the same kind of way that social media is now. And I've uh, found a cartoon strip from the 1960s on how a rumour spread around a firm and then led to strike action. I found a short story from the 1920s, again, about a rumour that led to uh, a welfare worker spending their whole day trying to track down someone who'd supposedly been hospitalised when it was based on nothing. So I guess some of this kind of concern about the real effects of misinformation has been around before. So I, I suppose, as we're going to be talking about this soon, uh, did you find that there were problems with uh, rumours and misinformation? Was that a major kind of challenge in uh, internal comms? Oh, definitely. Yeah, so that's always a thing. I mean, just just before I give you a more considered answer, you need to send me some of those cartoons. Or oh, that should be up online hopefully next week. Yeah, yeah. You need to be posting about them on LinkedIn. I think you. I think that would be fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I think once upon a time, and you're right, this is a problem that will never go away, and it's it extends all the way to tr- Donald Trump and his fake news, mm-hmm. and and actually people spreading kind of malicious rumors on Twitter about everything from a terrorist bomb to a football transfer, you know, anybody could post anything now and it can get picked up and go viral. It could have no basis in the truth whatsoever. But taking this back to my own sort of experience, I mean, often you'd find in organizations um, in the, the the span of time that I've I've worked for companies, um, there's, all, there's always been, and there always will be probably, two to three extremely cynical but well-connected and influential employees in your organization, or there'll be pockets Mm. of people, you're the sort of arch cynics. And the thing is that I say influential because, you know, to your example you've shared so eloquently, you know, these individuals have the ability to corrode your message Mm -hmm. uh, in some way, or they they try to start sinking the boat, you know, um, and I think various comms people, uh, and myself included, uh, we have on occasion tried to court those people, network, you know, develop a relationship with them, you know, invite them in, you know, invite them into focus groups, invite them into edit a newsletter, invite them to be interviewed, invite them to events, you know, and forums where other employees are. 
and just to get them kind of on side. Um, I think these days it's probably <laughs> there's a twin challenge now because and it again it's because of technology and I think a lot of people have you know either been frustrated or amused by this in equal measure but what you get now is like you, we could be on a zoom call like this uh, or a, a virtual meeting and let's say there's 12 to 15 people in you could have a couple of individuals within the meeting feeling quite disgruntled so they'll be one they'll be messaging each other one-to-one -one within the conversation or they'll be whatsapping each other um you also have situations where you know leaders leaders increasingly and it's been a good development um you know from the pandemic onwards i, I think ceos down have been much better at least in the places i've worked at getting on video calls and communicating directly with their mass audience off scripts you know away from powerpoint you know just really reaching out to people inviting questions listening but what, what you what you'll often get especially within an, an anonymous q a you will get keyboard warriors uh who will you know add spiteful comments because it's a it's a free hit and there's no way of them being kind of identified within the particular mm. sort of channel so that i think it's a constant challenge and i suppose i share those examples because it keeps the grapevine as you called it it keeps morphing into new mm. shapes and forms um but there's only one answer again i i it's similar to something i said earlier you know you have to be out in the field whether that's you encouraging your leadership team or your managers or you know you, you also have a lot of time commitment yourself as a comms person but you've got to be listening and it can't just be lip service and nodding um you know employees expect and often get much more from their organizations these days than they have done it any time in the past so the expectation's gone up uh, and the grapevine isn't going anywhere you know mm. it's 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 here and it'll always be there mm. and uh, yeah i suppose another kind of thing we're interested in on the project is uh not just the history of internal comms but also the way that history gets used in internal comms so um because obviously sometimes organizations make use of their own story uh, and we talked earlier about how part of internal comms is creating a narrative so did you find examples of this in the places you worked of uh, the organizations using their past and sort of heritage as part of their telling a wider story about the organization oh absolutely uh, and to be balanced about this you know and I'll, I'll use another john lewis example here um john lewis partnership was we're actually starting to do this extremely well from a heritage point of view um in and around their 150 year celebrations which were being planned um in the last few months I was there and then they were executed after I left. They had an extraordinary event, I believe. It was in Birmingham. I think it might have been at the Birmingham NEC, where they hired out, you know, one of the massive, I think it was one of the concert halls. They had trucks driving around there and, you know, a, a very high profile celebrity sort of host and all kinds of, you know, tremendous celebrations, you know, music, fireworks going off, no doubt. I'm sure there's a video of it online somewhere that you can watch. Um, I thought that was very effective because and even before that event when when we were sort of redrawing and communicating the the kind of strategy of of john lewis and its five-year or 10-year outlook you know it was all about the the retail revolution but 
in that sort of experiential retail theatre, but it was heavily rooted in John Speed and Lewis and his original writings. And they even dug out this amazing bit of grainy footage of um, John Speed and Lewis uh, on a bench, you know, and he's kind of, the, the John Lewis partnership is, a, you know, as an experiment. And, you know, it's this wonderful kind of uh, piece of film. And it was almost like the Holy Grail, but there, there were all kinds of other things, though. You know, they, they had an archive and they had, uh, you know, original invoices from the kind of Oxford Street flagship, again, that were on sort of brown sort of parchment and, you know, written with a quill pen and all this kind of thing. And, you know, I, 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 as I say, I think that was very effective because it tapped into the heart of a culture and it generated a massive sense of pride. Royal Mail and Unilever, I would say, not so much. Um, in Royal Mail's case, it was increasingly a fight for survival, especially in the second period I worked there, because mm. I worked there in two different periods for a total of about sort of seven and a half years. Um, so it was kind of a fight for survival and a fight to stay relevant. And, you know, that's still the case now. I mean, um, that John Lewis example I've just shared, um, I mean, I'm very lucky at the moment because I work for a luxury retailer that's very much a heritage brand, which is Fortnum & Mason, you know, founded in 1707, which is the same year as the Act of Union mm. that created Great Britain. You know, it's a 316-year-old business, you know, and I, I work with a lady called Dr. Andrea Tanner, who's this incredible archivist, and there's just stories that you know go back to the 17 and 1800s from the invention of the scotch egg to sending beef tea to florence nightingale and sending mm -hmm. a hamper to the the suffragette movement and to various explorers and ex, ex um you know expeditions that were going to the you know the the furthest reaches of the world kind of thing um and you know that's that's becoming more of a modern kind of heritage brand but I think, yeah, I think I think when brands use history well, but but bring it in with a kind of modern flavour and a modern twist, it can be extremely powerful. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. And yeah, like I say, John Lewis is certainly one where they've created quite an iconic image for themselves that people are well aware of. And certainly coming onto this project, I was a lot less aware of kind of Unilever's background, but actually they'd got kind of, yeah, quite a were heavily involved in the worker welfare movement of the early 20th century as well and but yeah somehow that maybe it hasn't yeah, made it quite so much into the public imagination perhaps i think no and i mean you know unilever has this this great uh, history of products as well you know there's a thing around margarine and sort of butter isn't there an in innovation mm. there and i know yeah. it's a kind of an anglo kind of dutch company it's heritage it's just that my own observation i mean i was a freelancer there for a period and i i just didn't see a massive amount of that story being told actively in communications campaigns at the time it may it may have been used a lot before and after um effect i mean it, it i guess it was i did see it in my induction though you know and i think that's another thing that companies use the heritage piece quite a lot in employee induction processes but maybe I suppose maybe they could use it more um, as well. You know, I know Coca-Cola, for example, have used it quite a lot in things like kind of Christmas campaigns or, um, you know, where they show kind of the brand kind of evolving mm. quite cleverly in marketing campaigns. Like you see the old kind of uh, typeface, font, you know, variation of color, variation of sort of product design and, and all that kind of thing. And I think brands can play on that 
Yeah. Sometimes. There we go. Um, for quite a lot of uh, the history of internal comms, the magazine has kind of been, I guess, the uh, staple way of communicating for quite, stayed that way for quite a lot of decades. And then, um, uh, yeah, from what we find is from about the 60s and 70s, there's the rise of team meetings, which is something we talked about on our website last month, which were actually quite a new concept then. And of course, the digital age has kind of changed things. But I guess magazines have kept going on through all of those and started to become digitized but we're maybe getting to the kind of age where some organizations are deciding to get rid of them so uh, do you feel that magazines do still have a role to play in communication today or do you think they have now hit a point where the way communication happens has just moved on this is just my personal view but i, I, I physical magazines i would say not really I, I don't think they they have a role to play and, you know, apologies if that offends anyone or people feel very passionately. You know, we've all enjoyed reading physical magazines uh, over the years. And, you know, people that commute in London read the ES magazine, you know, on a Thursday and Friday. And, you know, there's, there's, there's still pleasure to be had in reading physical magazines. But from a company point of view, I, I say kind of not really because... Hmm. I think e-news and e-magazines are good, you know, that, that can be created and that are uh, ubiquitous with mobile phone technology. So, you know, I think if employees can scan through rich visual content, you know, great imagery of things their company doing or their employees are doing great stories, uh, sometimes with film embedded, links off to other content, other relevant things. Um, but the print magazine, I think, has to be used sparingly, um, increasingly, not least because of cost and sustainability um, challenges. I think if you're doing something like, I mean, we talked there about, you know, the 150-year celebrations of um, John Lewis or, you know, like I say, I work for a heritage brand now. I think if you're doing something as a keepsake, you know, perhaps something that's heritage-related, then maybe. But I personally... It's, an, it's a no from me, Joe. I'm going to give yeah, you a very yeah, direct, yeah. definitive answer on that. But I, I like magazines. Yes, you know, yeah. I like music magazines, for example, but I'm afraid their time may have come and gone. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's fine. We're, we're not here just to defend yeah, the way things used to be done. It's kind of, yeah, to see how things have moved on. And uh, so obviously you've got your own uh, podcast series as well, Comes From The Shed. So I was just interested to know as well, uh, what kind of inspired you to start that? Well, I, I actually have two podcast shows. I've got one on music. I'm a big, I've, I'm a child of the 80s. I'm a big fan of the musician Prince. So I, I have one that's about kind of 80s music, which is great fun. But comes from the shed uh, and just my whole entry into podcasting actually came out of maybe a sort of bad time or a, a, a sort of challenging period in my life. You know, um, I had a, a career move when I went from construction to work for a, a kind of media brand um, and it just it just didn't work out for a number of reasons and I was after six months I found myself um, out of work during the pandemic which is a really really kind of difficult kind of thing to experience in hindsight um, and I, I was kind of considering you know what my kind of next move would be and I, I really just wanted to do something to, to kind of feel more sort of vital and I wanted to sort of almost go back to basics and maybe learn a new skill or tap into something that I'd always wanted to do hmm. so I'd always I'd always kind of 
I'd wanted to do more with the journalism, actually. But I wanted to sort of expand the sort of writing and the journalism onto a different type of platform. You know, it's like, and I think as well, I'd, in parallel, I was trying to, like a lot of people, I was just wanted to make sense of the world, you know, that I was now living in and experiencing. And part of that, I sort of started a blog, just a sort of therapy, you know, I was sort of sitting at home and I was sort of, I'd had a sort of chastening experience from a career point of view. And I was also just kind of thinking, I just wanted to reach out to people. So I had a blog on LinkedIn. Comes from the Shed was actually a blog. I was kind of dialing into all these video calls from my shed because mm. we couldn't go anywhere and drinking kind of copious cups of coffee. Um, and it kind of got a good sort of pickup. And then through the kind of music journalism and all that side hustle, I could sort of see that if I had a podcast, not only could I get a conversation going about COVID and all, the, all these extraordinary people that were doing extraordinary things, like retraining, you know, you had British Airways staff that were going out uh, on van deliveries as Ocado drivers and, you know, people that were sorting through PPE, they were volunteering for the NHS and, you know, it's, it's just all this extraordinary stuff. Um, and so... I, it was a it was a way of me connecting and it was a way of me kind of revitalizing myself my skills my career it was a bit of a, a reset you know and I'm kind of really lucky because it, it sort of it kind of it sort of became this like COVID-19 radio show from the bottom of my garden you know yeah, if sure. you like like a sort of transmitter uh there's sort of squirrels running over the <laughs> the roof of my shed occasionally and surreal things like that happening but it's still one of the most fulfilling things that's ever happened to me. Um, I've never earned a penny from it, I should say that. Uh, but it's it's really weird because it's been wonderful in terms of my career in an, in an intangible way. So, yeah, it's, it's it's been a great thing, but that's kind of how it came about. Oh, that's great. And I guess the very last thing we might think about then is to yeah get the crystal ball out and then kind of having talked about the history of internal comms, do you have any sense where you think it's heading in the future then? Yeah, I think I think one thing um, I I think the need for sort of authenticity is only going going to increase, you know. So your ability to be very very authentic and very human, because I think for years and years, maybe decades, there there was I think companies were allowed to maintain a detachment between a kind of uh, maybe slightly untouchable or out of reach leadership team, you know, like ivory tower is that sort of expression that was used, you know, uh, probably in the sixties and seventies. Um, but you know, and it, that was okay because communication sort of happened at an arm's length, you know, official missives and briefings were written and there was a comms team and, you know, that was disseminated and an email came along and then it was kind of, you know, it was again, more detachment, more arm's length, but the pandemic kind of changed a lot of things, you know, it kind of blew the doors off a little bit. And I think, it, I don't, I don't think we're going to go back, you know, cause I think sort of leaders have seen that, um, it, you know, leaders have kind of seen that, that, what's what's been created out of the back of that is this sort of hybrid working um and just a whole change to the working culture and so more authenticity is required because the expectations have gone up and up and up mm. um but i think as well 
one other thing actually this is this is probably important to, to sort of say as well if you're talking about what does the future hold i i don't think the principles of internal communication are not going to change you know um and the, the sort of beliefs we have about what great communication is what effective engagement is what it is to have you know wonderful communication that in turn starts to influence behavior and, and create action that that will never change um i mean it's interesting actually one of my mentors i dug this out when i knew i was going to be talking to you one of my mentors a, a lady called uh, sarah lazenby so many many years ago like this this book here i think it's it's got 1990 i'm holding it up your listeners won't be able to see it but i'll just describe it it's called effective employee communications it was written by Michael Bland and Peter Jackson. No, not that Peter Jackson, yeah. just for clarity. <laughs> it was published in 1990. Um, and I'll read you an excerpt from page 78, just to highlight my point. Uh, and this is this is a paragraph about, it's it, the heading is outside media. And it says, finally, don't forget that your own employees read the national and local newspapers. Every time the chairman gives an interview to the press or you put out a release, Remember that you're not only talking to customers, shareholders, and the public at large, you're also talking to your own workforce. They'll appreciate a fa favorable mention from time to time. Mm. Now, you know, that's the, this. So the, the point I'm making is, you know, a lot of, a lot of what, the sort of stuff you've been studying still holds true, you know, yeah, to our points about the grapevine. So um, the future is more authenticity, more transparency, higher expectations from employees than ever before increasing challenge to reach out to people because of the fragmentation of social media and the need to connect with frontline but it's it's also a world in which the fundamentals will never change no matter what the channels are whether we are communicating with vr headsets or with chat gpt and using kind of ai and different algorithms fundamentally we're still going to have to reach people in a very human way is my view yeah uh, yeah and it's good yeah that you brought up that point that obviously there'll be some underlying things that will stay the same and I guess that's what we're hoping to contribute to the profession by doing this is that by looking at how it's worked in lots of different I guess contexts then you start to it kind of makes you a bit more aware hopefully of some of the underlying kind of continuities about how communication actually works. Stories are so important you know I mean, stories uh, one thing I didn't mention in the pandemic is I think one of the things I, I began to understand is the the fundamental nature of storytelling from the point at which we're children right through to the point we're adults and pensioners and we eventually <laughs> slip away you know storytelling is the one thread that remains and you know TikTok is storytelling it's just <clears throat> it's just in a very short and abrupt form mm. but it's you know it's again that's that's kind of fundamental if we lose our ability to do that then we're probably in quite big trouble as well that brings us to the end of this episode of the history of internal communication podcast i want to extend a huge thank you to sam blessard for sharing his wealth of knowledge and experience with us today and of course thank you to all our listeners for tuning in be sure to join us again in may for our next episode where we'll be joined by the leadership and communication consultant Don Walters and Bill Quirk, the managing director of the IC Consultancy Synopsis and author of Communicating Corporate Change 
and making connections. In the meantime, head over to our website www.historyinternalcoms.org where you will find historical articles and our latest blog post, which investigates whether the concept of employee force existed before the term came into use. We even dug up an employee survey dating all the way back to 1954. It's a fascinating read. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you again next time on the History of Internal Communication podcast.